0: Welcome to Podagogies, a learning and teaching podcast. I'm Curtis Maloli.
1: And I'm Chelsea Jones. Joining us today is Dr. Rajiv Jungiani, Vice Provost, Teaching and Learning at Brock University and a faculty member in the Departments of Education, Studies, and Psychology. He's internationally renowned as a promoter of open education. And in a 2018 talk for the United Nations, he made the case for democratizing both knowledge and knowledge production. Dr. Jungiani joins
2: us now. Welcome. Delighted to be here. And if I may add to the introduction, more importantly, I'm a father of two boys, um, you know, parent of two cats, and owner of far more ukuleles than that. Thank you for, for having me.
0: I also play the ukulele. So we're gonna have to have a conversation about that a separate time.
2: I'm not good oh, though.
0: Yes. I, I only need one because that's that's where I'm at.
2: Three yeah, chords and well, the truth, right? That's all you need.
0: That's it. I'm with you hundred <laughs> percent. Um <laughs> The first time that uh, that I met you was in 2019, uh, at the time you were delivering the keynote address at the Annual Learning and Teaching Conference uh, at what was then Ryerson University and is now uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. Um, I remember quite vividly your talk that day, and you were discussing open pedagogy, you were discussing uh, issues of equity related to open pedagogy, and I remember that you you shared a statistic that stood out to me about how, like, over the last 40 years, textbook costs had increased by, like, a 1,000% or some astronomical number like that, and I remember some of your own research had shown that something like 50% of students would go without at least one textbook each term because of affordability. So I know you're well known for your advocacy around open source textbooks. Um, And I'm just curious, you know, since that time, since I saw you last in 2019, what have you seen change with respect to open educational resources and textbooks?
2: Gosh, it's a big question. And there's been many, many changes. But, uh, you know, I'll confess, I remember that morning really well myself, in part because we were in that big auditorium. It was brimful of faculty members. But what I really felt and what I saw was, not just the diversity in the room, but what felt like an appetite for change. And if I recall correctly, we actually went on for lunch, uh, went on to lunch in sort of a large gymnasium. And what was actually happening midway was uh, feeding through of values to build a new strategic planning segment for uh, TMU. So, I mean, it felt like a really opportune moment to be there because, you know, I think part of our conversation was reflecting on the connection between the values that bring us to this work as educators and the reality of the system that's still obviously, reinforces and replicates existing power hierarchies. So so I think you're right. I mean, you know, we did talk about those things, um, and it is true between 1977 and 2018, I would say it was about 1,041% is what the Bureau of Labor Statistics would will tell you, uh, about three or four times the rate of inflation, depending on which particular uh, stretch you want to look at. I, I will say what's been interesting since then, one change is it's finally leveled off. So it's now for the last, I would say, three four years, we've finally seen a bit of a plateau of uh, when it comes to to textbook costs. Number of reasons for this. Of course, if you talk to commercial publishers, uh, they will talk about programs that they've initiated, such as inclusive access. Uh, and you know, if, if you could see me on this podcast, I would have had air quotes around it because this is about you know, as inclusive. It's sort of like you know, when you name something the Patriot Act. Uh, it, it has that sort of connotation. So um, nobody's going to oppose something that's called inclusion, but uh, it's a program that involves digital delivery of resources, You know, stripping away agency for faculty so you can't choose from other publisher platforms, stripping away agency from students so that they cannot opt out of this mandatory textbook billing platform, uh, still problematic with digital rights management for students with accessibility needs, for example, copying, printing, pasting, challenges. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's leveled off is they've reduced the cost because they're trying to get out of the print textbook business with no printing distribution costs, with guaranteed revenue. So that's been one thing. And of course, affordable textbook initiatives all over North America have have really helped move the dial over here. So it has been a big change, but I would say at the same time, the pandemic, you know, accelerated some of these patterns. Uh, The shift to digital, of course, I know when I was at my former institution, even when it came to the question of how do we support our students getting access to textbooks? You know, on the one hand, it was, you know, these clever little driving carousels, drive through bookstore, pick up your books and, you know, masked in your car, et cetera, fine. But, you know, what about the students who are, stuck in places like China, international students who are taking courses as we pivoted online, of course, and you cannot ship those books. They're prohibitively expensive and the timeline was ridiculous and the supply chain got backed up. So quite fascinatingly, we saw yet another assist through the pandemic, not just because of the move to digital, but because of the technological challenges, you know, the great firewall of China posed a problem, for example, for the commercial textbook platforms that were digital. So I guess what I'm saying is over the pandemic, we've seen an even greater acceleration of the adoption of open textbooks and other kinds of open educational resources. We've seen adoptions right across the country. The Canada OER group is thriving. There's been national summits over the last six months about uniting behind a national advocacy campaign, uh, federal funding, supporting the UNESCO declaration, new zero textbook cost programs uh, popping up all over the place uh, and a lot more research backing all of this up. So in some ways, I think over the last year, well, I would say since since that since that talk at TMU, you know, the use of OER and open textbooks has become even more normalized and even more commonplace across the country, from what I can tell.
1: So you just mentioned OER, so open educational resources, and and we know that open pedagogy is a lot more than than about textbooks and and OER necessarily. It's also about practices, and I just want to pick up on something you said earlier. You made a distinction between the realities of what brings us to our work and the reality of the systems that we work in. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the difference between those realities and maybe say a bit more of how you can conceive of open education as as something that possibly meets us in the middle or does a bit of social justice work.
2: Mm, More than a bit. Oh my God, how much time do we have? This is really where everything is focused is on this gulf. And I think you can look at this in a number of ways, but Any university vision mission statement, I mean, it's a little bit like buzzword bingo, right? I mean, everything is nice and shiny, but the reality, again, so are we structuring our programs, our courses, our calendars, our semesters around the assumption that we're dealing with fairly privileged students who do not need to work for a living, who do not have family responsibilities, who are able to study as much as we expect outside of work, who do have access to high-speed internet access at home, who do have their own laptops and expensive devices, who do not uh, need to pray during Ramadan, who, I mean, there's a whole host of ways in which, right from legacy admissions down to textbook costs and the hidden curriculum uh, in which, you know, there's this massive, massive gulf. And so when people sit around thinking, why don't we have a more diverse campus, Uh, you know, it's not how the system, I mean, it's not a bug, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's the design. It's the whole intention of the system. And so lots of good intentions that pave the way, of course. But um, but I think textbook cost is just a good illustration of it. The research that demonstrates over and over again that students from marginalized backgrounds, and it could be in terms of economics or students with disabilities or BIPOC students, first-gen students, these are the ones who are suffering most at the hands of High textbook costs, especially when you have new additions with fairly cosmetic changes, when you have an access code that's tied to a textbook and that requires a student to effectively pay in order to do their homework. But I will back up even further and say, you know, from my perspective, and obviously over the years moving from a faculty position to an administrative position, one of the things I think a lot about is what is the situation for Sessional faculty who are given a course, maybe two, three weeks before the semester begins. What kind of labor can we expect them to engage in before they're actually being compensated in terms of preparing, you know, teaching a course? Is it not reasonable for them to just simply pick up something that somebody's handing to them and saying, well, you can plug and play this. You don't have to create the lecture slides. Here are some PowerPoint slides. You don't have to write the questions. Here's a question bank. Um, you, you know, you don't have to grade the students' responses because we've got this quizzing platform. So I I do want to sort of highlight, I suppose. How, you know, I do recognize the many ways in which uh, the commercial textbook industry's exploitative practices have in many ways preyed upon the precarity of labor within the academy because they've been able to weaponize this notion of convenience for faculty in many ways, but ultimately to the detriment of students.
1: There's so much happening in what you're saying, right? There's so much to take up here. And as you're speaking, I come from a critical disability studies background. And so the, the word that's you know sort of coming to my mind is access. This is a conversation about access. But I think I've also seen this conversation sort of framed around the concept of, of digital justice. And mm. so I just, I want to ask you, are we talking about digital justice? Is digital justice something that we can enact in our classrooms, given given all that you're describing, given that it's not a bug, it's by design?
2: Absolutely. But, you know, I I think for me, there's a little bit of interrogation around the concept of digital justice for me as well. I mean, you know, I'm thinking about work by people like Chris Gilliard, for example, who has written a lot about digital redlining and the ways in which the digital divide is reinforced, in fact, uh, in ways that uh, again, uh, exacerbate that equity problem, uh, right? And it sort of goes back to redlining itself in the city of Detroit, for example, and how, how you know, housing loans were far easier to get if you lived on one side of Eight Mile Road. is very racialized, right? So um, so I'm thinking about this in the context of, yes, pandemic conversations as well about, well, did the pivot to digital again exacerbate some existing inequities? And of course it did, right? Um, I, I will note in passing that there was a lot of hilarity as well for me. It was sort of this. It was satirical. It was not hilarious as much as it. It was like this feels like satire. Surely it cannot be you know, the same educators who two years ago were banning laptops from the classroom. These are the same educators who are now demanding mm-hmm. that students have their camera on, on their laptops with remote exam proctoring. It's like, mm-hmm. this was never about the device. This was always about control, you know? So uh, for me, yes, d- justice is a part of it. And, and what I love about this work is, you know, people often come to open education because of the resources and um, the cost savings to students. And that's an easy argument to get, hopefully. But you come for the cost savings, but you stay for the pedagogy, as I love to say, in part because you start to discover all of the things you could do. So, you know, I'd like to tie this conversation to the work of people like Sarah Lambert at Deakin University, uh, Cheryl Hodgkinson-Williams from South Africa. Um, They've had these frameworks that have been developed and, and Mahabali, Catherine Cronin and I have built on them to look at how one can intentionally leverage open educational practices in service of justice from you know, redistributive justice. So, of course, redistributing resources in this case, OER, free and openly licensed resources to to learners who wouldn't wouldn't have access just by virtue of their circumstance. That's great, but in some ways, significant cost savings for students is almost like the least significant benefit of OER, because uh, you can go further. You can address sociocultural diversity in the curriculum by taking advantage of the affordances of open licensing to actually localize, contextualize the resources that students are encountering. But then, of course, with open pedagogies, you get to a whole other layer because you're attempting to not just widen equitable access to course materials, but you're actually talking about the democratization of the learning process, trying to push back against the structural academic gatekeeping within the academy by inviting learners to co-construct knowledge, co-construct who we are. And so then you can get further. You can go from recognitive justice to representational justice, even epistemic justice. So it gets a whole lot more exciting. And so for me, part of the joy of this work is when I talk about that gulf, it's also, you know, people working within the system for years. You get into this rhythm where you accept some of the some of the premises, some of the the characteristics of the system we're living in. And what I see repeatedly is that spark that comes back. Right. I could see an educator who has absolutely rediscovered that joy, that experimentation, and are comfortable with questioning everything, including sort of the question of, am I comfortable decentering myself in the classroom? Is it okay for me to you know, not pose as an expert in everything that I'm presumed to be? How can we best benefit from this process when we move away from that banking model? You know, for me, the longer term impact is just how many people are just reconnecting with the values that brought them to education by way of some of this work. And so I do think about open educational practices as an important tool. It's not a panacea by any means happy to have a critical conversation about its drawbacks and challenges but it has been a very effective tool in service of justice but also frankly in, in aid of helping to rediscover joy in the classroom and in particular for educators who I think in many ways the system beats it out of us sometimes
0: you've uh You've introduced here so many different concepts and possible threads I could pursue, but when you're talking about the joy in teaching and democratizing the learning process and, you know, thinking about what we construct with students or co-construct with students, you know, we're at this interesting moment, and I know it's happening at the institution that I work at, where we are trying to put together what is being called in most places a digital strategy for teaching and learning. So we've experienced this disruption during the pandemic. And now we're at a moment where we're supposed to be putting forward a strategy, but, you know, how well we've thought through exactly what we've learned and exactly what the possibilities are, you know, everything you just said is tied up in this. So I wonder if we were to start there, if we were to start with this kind of bureaucratic process that we all have to move through, but to do so in a way that centers open pedagogy, you know, where do you start? How do I, if I'm putting together one of these strategies, at least I'm trying to think about the principles that are essential in informing that next stage. Uh, where, where do I start? Where Where is the first place that we need to be thinking that we might not be already?
2: Is that too big a question? It's a great, no, it's a, it's a great question. I hope it's the kind of question that people ask themselves fairly regularly, But and I agree. I think it's something that many universities have been undergoing, this reflection in, in a few different ways. To be honest, I, I think part of the question over here is who's the we, right? So that's maybe in some ways I'm foreshadowing where I'm going with this, but the question of who's at the table for these discussions in the first place, because traditionally, if you're talking about, um, let's say, Senate committees on teaching and learning, or composed of tenured faculty members, maybe you know some administrators, perhaps some student senators. Again, knowing that the sort of limited nature of their term and the challenges with their fuller participation, we are not necessarily talking about the widest spectrum uh, of knowledge of expertise or especially lived experiences. So I guess the question is, who's not at the table? Who are we designing for? You know, I, I love these practices known as liberating structures. And there's one in particular that, that I'll share. Um, these like are sort of group facilitation techniques sometimes, but they're beautiful. There's one called TRIZ. Uh, and we've used it with great success in the past, just in 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 it workshops talking about open pedagogies. But what I love about it is it sets you up in a way to interrogate your own thinking. It says, you know, let's imagine for a moment, that we want to not do what we're talking about. Let's imagine the opposite outcome. We want to design an academy for digital teaching and learning that is as exclusive as possible, right? That is as racist, that is as traumatic, that is as exclusionary, that is as ableist as possible. And I know this is going to feel ridiculous, but it's a thought exercise. What would we do? And once people get into it, you get this odd rush of creativity and laughter and people start sharing and you start, okay, well, this is what we would do. and it's ridiculous. We would never contemplate this really, but of course, this is what we would do. But it's a safer way to explore that. But then the next stage is you kind of stick it, take a step back and say, okay, well, that's the list of, you know, evil intent. Now let's critically reflect. Are we even remotely in the slightest way doing any of that right now? and sort of interrogating that. So I think for me, the the question is, are we designing for the margins or are we designing for the mode? you are designed for the margins, everybody's looked after and you don't have to individually retrofit the system as we do right now. So I think when we're talking about digital futures is intimately tied to the broader future we're envisioning because we can have the most innovative, effective, engaging learning environment in the world better than anyone can imagine. But if it resembles anything like, you know, Elon Musk's fever dream for the academy, this is not the future we want. So I I think the question is really, who is the we? What is the future? And if the future is equitable, this is going to look quite a bit different. It's
0: such a good point. You know, it's such a challenge because in a really practical kind of way, I think that students are expecting changes, right? We've done education differently. There are aspects of it that were really problematic. There are aspects of it that were really wonderful. You know, I, I'm even seeing uh, this particular term. I've I've spoken with many faculty members who have expressed a lot of shock at the idea that students sort of aren't coming back to class in some cases. Um, and mm-hmm. when we are imagining our future, um, let's, you know, Reasonably, let's start with our learning outcomes. Let's see what we're trying to get students to do. Let's think about how we might be able to do it better. But there's a, a really significant piece that you're talking about that is that we piece that's kind of left out of that equation. Uh, and so to put it meaningfully back in the equation, it's quite a challenge and, and quite an interesting uh, problem.
2: Yeah. And I think learning outcomes is a reasonable place to start, just as a conversation about textbooks is a reasonable place to start. It's known, it's familiar, it feels somewhat tangible. But it's also a relatively impoverished way of approaching the learning experience, right? I mean, learning outcomes. I think is it, is it maybe a, a good illustration. So I'll just run with that. So, you know, in in theory, of course, I love this idea of backwards course design, and you align your. Uh, activities and assessments with the outcomes—fantastic! It all makes sense. There's a bit of a journey happening. Good, all right. But this notion that you know you can sort of indicate here's the journey we're going to embark on before I've ever met a single student in my classroom—that's bizarre to, to me as an educator. At the same time, so so I view it with with sort of you know some some degree of humor as well. Um, and so I suppose that's the piece connecting back to what I said earlier. Reminds me of the words of Arundhati Roy, right? Uh amazing writer and thinker. She said that there's no such thing as the voiceless. There's only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. And so when it comes to strategic planning, for me, that's a really, really useful way to think about it is whose voices are, are not here. But of course, then how can we build this in a way that's also not... And sorry, I feel like all of the black feminists are now coming to mind, you know, not using the master's tools, because this is not always going to work in this way. Um, And even questions of, you know, assumptions around hierarchical classrooms and what this will look like. And it gets layered and layered and layered. But I think it just starts with the question of, you know, what is the future and who is the we? And are we going to allow ourselves to break things along the way, right? You will always have particularly around conversations that touch on justice and equity and diversity and especially inclusion, you know, pushback, both in terms of let this be a civil discussion, uh, let this be a collegial discussion, or, you know, let, let us, there'll be intent to use or, or weaponize even concepts like meritocracy in service of the status quo, because of course, there are many people who, who the status quo serves incredibly well. And it's that troubling of, of that comfort. That is the challenge, and and that's the joy of it as well, right? If we're really critical educators, that is the openness that we need as we're planning and re-envisioning the future is – we need to be open to being uncomfortable because, of course, the degree of discomfort we experience is, in some ways, a reflection of the privilege we enjoy.
1: Rajiv, as you were talking a few moments ago about this thought exercise, this idea of what would we do if we wanted to design for the privileged, and I was thinking about that um, as you and Curtis were chatting, and. I was thinking that if I wanted to do that, you know, to engage in this exercises a bit, my response would be that um, I would stage a return to normal campaign, mm-hmm. a welcome back, let's get back to normal campaign. Um, okay. And unlike what Curtis is, is saying in terms of some institutions developing these digital strategies, there are other places that are really pushing for a return back to normal. And this has people in a lot of critical fields uh, quite concerned. um, Because as you point out, the status quo, what was once normal was exclusionary for a lot of people. And a lot of people have been pointing this out for a long time, like long before the pandemic. And now that we are in um, what Jessica Vosterman's and Chelsea Moeller dub post and with pandemic times, I I like that phrasing because it sort of encompasses both. We see these, let's get back to it campaigns, let's get back to campus and get back to normal. And I'm wondering, you know, can you imagine ways that some digital interventions might help us resist the push back to normal on campuses, or maybe I should say in
2: classrooms? It's such a great point and such a great question. You know, it's funny just talking to both of you, different things are flying into my mind, but only one of them is, is from Eminem, his song, Lose Yourself. Back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. And I think that's the challenge over here is, is us, even when we were in pivot times, if you will, there was still that drag because people were still trying to recreate the classrooms of control in digital spaces where, no, you need to have your camera on. No, I'm gonna talk at you for a synchronous lecture for for two hours. Yes, I'm gonna take attendance. No, we're gonna pretend like you don't have access to your textbook right in front of you. We're gonna say this is a closed book exam. No, I'm not gonna adjust my assessment. I mean, so it's really kind of strange, but the inertia is incredibly strong. And so now that the, some of those constraints have been relaxed, I and mean, you can imagine there was always the gravity, and we I felt it, I saw it when we were in the thick of the of the pivot to, to remote emergency instruction. And so now, of course, the gravitational pull is even stronger as people experience that relief at, you know, in, in many cases, not all cases at all, to be able to go back to the classroom and, oh, thank goodness, I do not have to change again. But I will say there's been loads of folks who have discovered to their surprise, in many cases, some of the benefits of doing things differently. And that's been nice to see. I mean, of course, it's sometimes not for the reason you think. So, you know, I discovered I, I like working in my cabin for six months of the year. So I'll teach online now. No, I'm not interested in doing any professional development or instructional development in, in how to design my assessments for this space. But so, so you know, there's gravity in a number of different ways. So I, I would say, you know, looking a bit deeper for me is the question of, that real alignment. So on the surface, it may look like a practice that's resisting gravity, but more deeply it may not be at all, uh, and vice versa. Uh, and so I think it's a useful thing. One of the things we're talking about at Brock, now a newly approved academic plan, ding, about seven days, <laughs> nine days ago, uh, is we're gonna develop an advance for consideration of framework for ethical educational technologies, for starters. And so, you know, as we increasingly talk about augmenting what we're doing in the classroom, enhancing it through technology, including some of the things that have happened over the pandemic, wanting to to not get into this space where we are reinforcing and amplifying societal biases through these digital platforms. So it could be anything right from, look, a learning management system, if you have it defaulting to legal name and you're dead naming trans students, this is an issue. Or if you're going to talk about digital textbook platforms and they are problematic for accessibility, this is a thing. We're not going to get into the business of, oh, well, yeah, we can make an individual process for you if you want to change your name. Oh, no, we can convert this text to a large format by working around this. No, no, no more retrofitting, no more individual accommodation, no more relying on the compassion of individual educators. Just no, that's not how we're going to build a system and, and then bend over we we change the system. At procurement, we do not allow it to proceed. Um, so I think that's the deeper level at which I'd love to see that, that change. Uh, there is an appetite. So in BC, for example, they've just had a ministry-supported digital learning advisory committee that supported reflection and, and a report, a set of recommendations that just came out for the entire sector over there. There's several recommendations around it, and it's centered on the question of digital equity. And I think that's a good example of leadership that I'm hoping that we can see over here We've been sharing some of that work with our friends at Ecampus Ontario, with the ministry, so the Council of Ontario Universities, but certainly at the institutional level at Brock, that's part of how I envision things proceeding from here is, is the question of, you know, um, yeah, just some of those checks so that there's a limit to how far people can, we, we can allow gravity to pull us back because we don't want to go back. And it's not that we want to be stuck in that strange liminal space. We want the agency that was taken away from us during the pandemic. But we certainly don't want to abandon the lessons.
1: Is that, you know, I'm thinking about what you've called this. Is that where the ethics piece comes in? Like this this sort of ethical side of it? Does that have something to do with resisting that pull back? I'm curious about the language around it.
2: I think so. I mean, I certainly think about it in this way. But I think, you know, the conversation is interesting to me because it reminds me of that conversation, particularly from critical disability scholars over the pandemic around, oh, there are these inequities as mm. though they never existed before, right? They became mm. more visible to some people over the pandemic. So I think that's that's part of it for me is, and just as an example, the way in which the academy is structured and the silos and the sort of depersonalization of some of these decision-making processes, mm. you know, em- enables this to some degree because an instructor may use technologies that the institution provides or things that come to them through a a textbook publisher's platform that that wrap around that book or something else. But to some degree, I mean, you know, is it not fair for a student to assume that someone's done some due diligence when it comes to the technologies that they are being compelled to use, the digital footprint that they're being compelled to to leave? I have colleagues in the United States. It's not a, a hypothetical, to talk about students leaving a digital footprint, uh, you know, dreamers, let's say uh, that might be used to to discover and eventually deport members of their family, right? So there is an ethical obligation on the institution to do this, and I'm not sure where that is being taken seriously. Whether it's at the level of the instructor, who, again, if we're talking about a sessional instructor, I don't think that's a fair obligation to pass on. Uh, I'm not sure it's happening at the level of senate in conversations that may or may not be informed by the people who would be most exposed by these kinds of practices. I, I'm not sure it's happening anyway without that intention. So I, I do think it's a, it's a question of ethics, but it's a connection of, of how our everyday decision-making either actually supports in a tangible way the promise of justice in all of these ways, or if, again, it's one of these, yet another example of what higher ed does so well, which is performative allyship.
0: I can't tell you how incredibly helpful it is. Uh, For me personally, our center is in the process of um, kind of thinking through what a good process would look like in creating the digital strategy. So we're really at a beginning stage. And so, you know, a lot of the stuff you're raising is really making me think a lot about that and and the process that we're thinking about. But, you know, our center also supports instructors and faculty at course design level. You know, you brought up assessment and your answer several times there in different kinds of ways. And I was thinking even of open pedagogy and assessment, a digital footprint, thinking about what we ask our students to do. Can they enter it into the real world and have authentic assessment, the ethical implications of that? What are your thoughts about open pedagogy and assessment?
2: it's it's interesting and i'm i'm going to answer this sort of reflecting on some recent work by tim fawns that i think people who engage in this kind of work would really benefit from cuz he he talked about what he calls entangled pedagogy right sort of a move away from pedagogy before technology which is almost like the bumper sticker of the of the early knots in some ways um and even obviously not technology before pedagogy but just how one informs the other um so When it comes to open pedagogy, I think part of the joy over here is, of course, playing with these strands. But with open pedagogy, we're talking not just about assessment. We could be much broader, thinking about students and agency in the classroom. So whether it's co-constructing the course syllabus or course policies or schedules of work, whatever it is, but allowing it so that it is a student-driven journey in many ways. Right, Robin DeRosa and I often talk about open pedagogy as an access-oriented commitment to learner-driven education, but it's also of course a process of using tools for learning and building architectures for learning that allow students to shape the public knowledge commons and so the one of the more common not common at this point but popular i think manifestations of open pedagogy is what's often called the renewable assignment and that's meant to to stand in in almost in relief against the disposable assignment right the typical assignment which student works on only they and the instructor will ever see it 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 certainly serves as student learning, student skill development perhaps, but nothing bigger. And so... With these kinds of assignments, with these kinds of assessments, you're talking about something that varies from traditional assignments in at least three ways. Uh, one, it has a larger audience. So it's not just the instructors, not just you. It might be public scholarship, for example. Uh, two, it has a longer life. It doesn't end at the end of the semester. You're not wiping all trace of student activity from the learning management system at the end of the semester as though their intellectual labor had no value, which is the message we're sending, folks. Um, and of course, it also has a deeper impact. It actually contributes to So it could be students editing, uh, improving articles on Wikipedia. It could be students creating instructional videos that are openly licensed. It could be, you know, writing op-ed pieces and publishing them in local newspapers. It could be students creating open educational resources as part of their coursework. It could be a whole host of things. But yes, again, needs to be approached critically because that sounds exciting and it's fun. And yes, it's true, the energy and creativity and even the pride that you see from students when they see that their work actually has meaning, its value, it's not just another kind of task in this long series of hurdles uh, in order to get their degree. This goes back to one of those, I'm not gonna go on this tangent too much, but I- again, you know, what's the deeper issue? Is there, a, is there not a reason why students are responding to traditional assessments as though this is just... You know, why do they only care about the grade? Because we make them only care about the grade. The system compels them to only care about the grade. And again, we may pay lip service to the higher ideals of education, but we're not setting up the system to actually support that. So uh, again, with open pedagogy, though, critically approaching it, how are you actually scaffolding this? Where is the digital and information literacy happening? Um, Are you thinking through things like more marginalized students, are gonna be targeted disproportionately in flame wars and Wikipedia editing, for example. What kinds of literacy supports training are you actually thinking through? There's ways to do this incredibly well and ethically. And we've got some great models, great examples. Some of them, of course, are posted on the open pedagogy notebook. But you know, I think about the work of people like Arlie Cruthers, is a good example for me of somebody who is extraordinary at navigating this in a, in a very, very thoughtful way. Um, and she's worked with her students this is at Kwantlen Polytechnic University. She's an applied communications instructor. And I'll just share one quick example of one of those assignments that she designed with her learners that just, this is this is one of those moments where you can hear the sound of hope <laughs> in the academy. It was a wonderful thing. It was a research course. Uh, the students decided to focus their research project on, of all things, textbook affordability. So they did a research project, quantitative, qualitative. They interviewed their peers, all of this produced a report. Now, you might think normally, all right, that's cool. It's engaging. That sounds relatively common. It's good. It's good. It's not, you know, a 400-student class completing 150 multiple-choice questions out of a publisher text bank. In that sense, it's great. But she went much further. So the students then decided they used H5P, which is open-source technology, often uh, easily easy to create OER with. And they created this this interactive game. It was first a paper and game, like, you know, like a board game, effectively. Where they designed this game, uh, which could easily be used as an educational development tool for faculty because it was based on students' lived experiences, real lived experiences. Where you had to navigate this simulation. Where you start the semester, you have to make decisions about what books you're going to buy. Maybe, oh, you know, I don't have enough money. Maybe this one will be used. Maybe this one, I'll have to, you know, skip the access code. We'll figure it out. Go through the first exam. You get your grades. Maybe you then have to figure it out. Oh, I can't get through that course without a book. Okay, I need this at this point. And then these random life events happen. You know, you drop your phone into the toilet. Uh, You need to make a trip back to India as an international student because a family member has passed away. Whatever it is, these, these life events that genuinely were based on students' lives, and you need to deal with it. And that game has been now converted to H5P. So it can be done interactively online. It is licensed openly, but it was built by the students. It's an incredible educational tool. And that's an example of the kind of work that is just, of course, inspiring. But it just unlocks a level that this is not normative practice in the academy, to give students that kind of voice, to let them drive the agenda and allow them to enhance the agenda that beautifully. So... It's a good example for me of how you can ethically decenter your role as an instructor. You can ethically think about the use of digital technologies um, and how you can empower the voices of those whose voices have never been listened to.
0: It's it's incredible. It's such a great example. I'm I'm really thrilled that we can we can sort of end in a place like that. You know, Chels. I think we need to make this a a long form podcast going forward. We we don't have enough time here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's true. And. You know, our listeners can't see this, but I see that behind Rajiv, there are some ukuleles. And I was thinking as you were talking about OER and renewable assignments, I was thinking, gee, I wonder if we could think together about what, how we would teach someone to play ukulele using OER or a renewable assignment. Have you ever thought about that, Rajiv?
2: Funny, I haven't t- thought about it that way, but I've thought about the connection between the two, certainly. Because for me, it, it's a beautiful thing. So my eight-year-old is learning the ukulele as well right now. But I picked it up in in this in these classes. This was pre-pandemic, and it was really interesting self-selection. Who takes an ukulele class? It was, a, uh, you know, um, an older group for the most part. I don't think they minded me trying to play Guns N' Roses on the ukulele, for example. But but that was not the typical fare, nonetheless. But I think about this in terms of vulnerability, right? I mean it is something that's accessible. It's not the violin in terms of uh, the the learning curve in that way. You can, with about four chords, as many people will tell you, uh, you can, can play quite a few songs with four basic chords. And so you can build that sense of efficacy, but even so, doing this requires you to step outside of your comfort zone. It requires you to demonstrate and embrace that vulnerability. Uh, particularly if you're going to sing alongside which is where the real joy comes in uh, and then if you do it in a room with other people of course this emboldens you further not just because uh, you know you're drowned out or something but because you can see other people similarly stumbling uh, and and figuring it out together so so i think for me this there's a beauty around learning to play a new instrument there's the beauty around you know singing karaoke for that matter And part of it is around that shared experience of vulnerability. Now, again, knowing that the risks of digital practice are unevenly distributed, that's where I think the the conversation comes in. Even with open pedagogy, of course, you can scaffold this. Of course, you can have your students work within the, you know, walled garden of the learning management system before you take them further. Uh, Of course, it should be their choice what they, um, you know, how they want to license their intellectual property. Right. And I say this, you know, as though we all are in agreement when I say, right. Again, we regularly, routinely tell students that they don't have that agency. Uh, of course, you need to submit all of your course essays, lab assignments to turnitin.com, which will actively monetize your intellectual property without any compensation. Uh, we're going to disregard our university IP policy as we do so. So there is that vulnerability, but it, 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 it I think, begs the question of how we support that vulnerability.
1: It's really been a joy talking to you today, Rajiv. Thank
2: you. Likewise. It's a a pleasure and I can't wait for the next next chat.
1: A big thank you to instructional technologist Sally Goldberg-Powell, who produces Podagogies.
0: And we want to thank the Centre for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at Toronto Metropolitan University for funding the podcast.
1: And we want to thank Brock University's Centre for Pedagogical Innovation for supporting this podcast.